You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Miriam Brand, and sitting with me here is my friend Melissa. Hi, everyone. And in today's episode, I'm actually pretty excited because this is kind of a recap episode. It's a bit of the end of an era for me because what I was doing in my previous episodes was I was taking my book, which is Evil Within and Without, and I was adding to it, but I was basing myself on my book and looking at how the source of sin was understood in the Second Temple period, but I was starting with the biblical stories. And then as you've noticed, probably in the last few episodes, I really focused on Dead Sea Scrolls and Second Temple thought. And now what I'm moving to is now I have finished essentially giving an overview of the book and also looking at biblical stories. And we're moving on to topics also related to sin and evil, again, starting with a biblical story and then moving into Second Temple thought and sometimes rabbinic literature. And what you're going to see here is we're going to kind of go back to a little bit more free form. I know that in the last few episodes, I've been maybe a little bit technical and dense, which is good if you like really want to hear an in-depth analysis of the trees of the two spirits. But if you don't, then it's a little bit harder to listen to, I realize. And now we're moving back to a little bit more expansive. At the same time, you know, if you have a topic that you'd like me to discuss, please write it in a comment to the site. It's at understandingsin.com. You can write it as a comment on this episode, really on any episode, because I do read all my comments, or you can send me direct feedback. Some of the things I'm going to be discussing in the coming episodes are ideas of sin and punishment, particularly sin and punishment in general, collective punishment, intergenerational punishment, ideas, how the approach to that shifted. And we're also going to look at things like atonement, which is a little bit, is, which is trickier, as you can guess. Hell, this was a, this was a listener request. And so uh, I'm going to look at hell as it shows up or doesn't show up in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, and looking at, at the idea of that as that develops. And I'm interested in hearing what you guys would like to learn a little bit more about. And I'm considering also starting a new series, not in the very near future, but I'm thinking about it, where I talk about the weekly portion of the Parsha. And that would probably be with another person who has something to say about that specific Parsha, but we'll see how that goes. That's not the very next thing, but stay tuned. So with no further ado, what I'm going to do now is kind of talk about what we've seen so far and kind of uh, summarize it in a way, like what have we learned? What have we seen? What can we understand from all the things we've discussed? And also, this is a good episode for someone who hasn't listened to previous episodes to say, oh, I would like to listen to more about this, because there's a difference between episodes in terms of how much something discusses the biblical story, how much something discusses, let's say, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and how in-depth certain episodes are. So where did we begin with discussing where did sin come from? And again, I was mainly concerned about where in the Second Temple period, where do people think sin was coming from? But of course, we started with a biblical story. And we started by looking at the plain meaning of the text. In other words, what is the story of Adam and Eve really about? And one of the things that I argued, and this was in the very first episode, is that it's not really about where sin comes from. It's about where certain parts of the human condition originate. And these are things that separate people from animals, giving birth 
in pain, having to work the land for food. These are things that are part of the human situation. And I explained a little bit about why in that case, we can understand why this wasn't a major story for the source of sin in the second temple period until after the destruction. We have little sparks of it in Ben Sira. We you know a small reflection of the story in Ben Sira, the idea that that sin comes from a woman, right? But he's hinting, he's possibly hinting to the story there where we really see this idea of the origin of sin with Adam or with Adam's actions is in 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch, which are books that are written right after the destruction of the temple. And in a later episode, when I was discussing those books, I talked about why would it be a better explanation for sin, let's say, in after the destruction. And part of the reason, I think, could be that Jews were looking for an explanation of what was considered a cosmic punishment and also punishment that they didn't deserve, at least not compared to other nations. In other words, Jews were like, and this is in this is what Ezra argues in Fourth Ezra, he's like, okay, we were bad, we sinned, but the people who destroyed us sinned worse. So I don't understand. And so if you're looking for some kind of cosmic some kind of major explanation for punishment that's coming, you can go back, let's say, to the beginning of humanity and say, oh, well, there was this big sin that we've all inherited from Adam, and that merits any kind of huge punishment. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but it's very hard to understand why this would become such a popular explanation shortly after the destruction. And we see it so centrally in the books of Fourth Ezra and Second Baruch. That I discussed that in a later episode when I was talking about the books of 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch. And then we talked about uh, the story of Cain and Abel. This is a story about the origin of sin. And of course, there are absolutely, there's absolutely a statement from God to Cain, right, that explains sin. He says, that sin is crouching at the entrance. And the question is, so why isn't this taken up in the Second Temple period. And at least in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it seems to be that it's only taken up if you're talking about the wicked. And since if I am a member of the Dead Sea community, or if I am any real person in the Second Temple period who considers myself a believing Jew, then I'm one of the righteous, right? I should be one of the righteous. So what God says to a someone who ends up killing his brother is less relevant to me than something someone would be say to a righteous person. That could explain why these verses are really not taken up until we get to rabbinical literature, where there are certain recountings of the story that says, oh, well, Cain is the first penitent when he says, my sin is too great to bear, right? And even though in the plain meaning of the text, what he simply means is my punishment is too great to bear. This punishment that you're giving me that I'm going to wander the earth is going to end up with me being killed, which was not supposed to be part of the punishment. If you recall, the punishment for murder as being killed. In other words, that someone, a murderer is killed. We find that specifically told to Noah after he gets out of the ark, right? So that's far, that's long after Cain. Cain is actually not killed as a punishment for murdering his brother, even if, you know, one would expect him to. So then I discussed, you know, what the idea of Adam and sin in the second temple period, which I just discussed with fourth Ezra and second Baruch. I have actually two different episodes of that. The first one is number three. And then I, I spent a while talking about the Watchers. And the Watchers is a story that is a major explanation for the source of sin in the second temple period. And that's the idea from Genesis 6, from Breshit Vav, the idea that angels, and that's how it's interpreted in the Second Temple period, not like it's interpreted later in medieval Jewish interpretation. It's understood to be angels. That angels mate with human women. They have these children, and these children are giants 
who are themselves tremendously destructive. And according to one version of this story, when these giants are killed, they release evil spirits. And those evil spirits are the cause of all sorts of bad things for humanity, including sin. We find this idea in Enoch, we find this idea in Jubilees, and we find this idea in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the way they play out in Dead Sea Scrolls is there, whereas in Jubilees, these demons are kind of subjugated to this uber demon, or, or rather an, the angel, the angel Mastema, who's part of the heavenly court, which is a lot like, he's a lot like Satan in that respect, or the Satan rather. He's a lot like the Satan in that he fulfills a role in the heavenly court, but he's the main bad guy in Jubilees and he kind of commands these spirits that descended from the Watchers. But in Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're seen as kind of a, this chaotic force or a rather anarchic force that one has to pray against and that they can come into a person and cause sin. And again, this is something that comes up a lot, but the kind of demonic possession that you get in the Gospels, where demons can kind of go into a bunch of pigs and make them commit suicide, is not what you have in the Second Temple literature that we have, the Jewish Second Temple literature. And it's very, very different. And it's 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 kind of funny because it's a question of where it even comes from, because in the Gospels, this is taken for granted that this happens and everyone believes it. And in the Second Temple literature that I work with, it's simply not the way demons work. Demons don't take over a person like a puppet. The prayers, the Dead Sea Scroll prayers that mention the watcher spirits, and they call them the bastards because they're bastards because they're the result of an illicit union, right? The union between angels and humans, that's an illicit union in Jewish law. And you have a bastard is not someone born out of wedlock. A bastard is born out of an illicit union. Let's say, I don't know, uh, two siblings, right? That would produce a bastard. So these spirits are called bastard spirits. And the people praying are saying, oh, they're calling into me and they're battling with the laws that you've given me, right? And the idea is that they're influencing, there's a battle within the person, but they don't just take over. No one says these demons made me do it, with one exception, which is in the Damascus document. In the Damascus document, there is one in column 12, there is a, a line where it says if someone's under the influence of Blial, and Blial is the main baddie for the Dead Sea community, if he essentially breaks, desecrates the Shabbat because he's under the influence or he speaks badly against the leaders because he's under the influence of Blial, if he speaks out against the leaders, then he's doomed. But if he desecrates the Shabbat, then he's put under house arrest. He's not, you know, they give him a chance because he was under the influence of Blia. One possible explanation of this, and I mentioned this in the later episode, one possible explanation of this is that Blial in the Damascus document specifically was considered to mislead people. And he misled people specifically according to what is the right law. What is the correct law? He made people think, he makes people think, people who are outside the community, think that they're actually following the correct law when everyone in the community knows the community's law is the correct law. So this Blial is used as an explanation for why someone would not follow the community law, why someone would not be convinced that the community is right. And so if someone is desecrating the Shabbat under the influence of the Glial, perhaps this means that he has fallen prey to arguments from people outside the community that the community calendar is incorrect. If you recall, the community calendar is very different from the lunisolar calendar that traditional Judaism uses and used. Since we're talking about it, we're about the calendar. So Judaism uses a lunisolar calendar, in other words, a lunar calendar that is adjusted regularly to match the seasons. The Dead Sea community was one of the Jewish communities that's, that wanted to have a solar calendar. When did people start saying, oh, let's follow a solar calendar? The entire ancient Near East used a lunisolar calendar. The entire, the whole Persian Empire 
used a lunar solar calendar. They used a lunar calendar that would be adjusted every now and then for the sun. And before the Persian Empire, this was the calendar of the area. They used a lunar solar calendar. However, Egypt used a solar calendar when the Greeks came through, or the Hellenizers came through, and they started comparing calendars. They said, it's clear that the solar calendar is better because it never needs to be adjusted. They didn't know about leap years. They thought it was a perfect 364-day calendar. You can divide it by all sorts of things. It's perfect. It never needs to be adjusted. And so that's clearly the better calendar. And so the Dead Sea community, like other Jewish communities, there were other Jewish communities who also thought this, said, wow, they're right. The solar calendar never has to be adjusted. This must be the original calendar. The people who are doing the lunar solar calendar must have gotten it wrong because clearly anything from God is perfect and it must have been the solar calendar. So by original, you mean the calendar given by God or created by the first people who created calendars? In the Bible, you have allusions to the calendar and and in terms of having kind of a, a lunar calendar at the same time as you have solar holidays right? Because there are holidays that are connected to the agricultural cycle, right? So that's the biblical calendar. And the idea was that everyone was trying to figure out what does God want? That's what the Dead Sea community wanted to know. What does God want? They say, we know what God wants and you don't understand. We can show you what God wants. And sometimes it's based on a biblical readings and sometimes it's based on secrets that they say that have been revealed to them that have not been revealed to other people. So the calendar, they're considering they have a very worked out calendar, which is, from their point of view, perfect. It works out really nicely because the holidays are always on the same day of the week every year. So the first of the of the year is always a Wednesday. Why? Because it's Wednesday when they when the planets are created, right? Planets are created, the seasons, everything's created on Wednesday on the fourth day. So the first of the month is always Wednesday. They don't have the problem in rabbinic law, well, there's a problem of when do you have Shavuot, right? When do you have in English it's Pentecost, right? When do you have Shavuot? Because you have to count from Mimaharata Shabbat, from the day after Shabbat, which rabbinic law interprets as the holiday, right? The day after the holiday. Why? Because rabbinic law has to give a date. You need a date for Shavuot. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they didn't have that problem because they could make sure that it was always that, that t- in other words, everything was set. They knew the day of the week. So you can make sure that it worked out from the day after Shabbat every year. The question is, of course, how long could they have kept that calendar? Because the year is not 364 days. So how long could they have actually kept that calendar? This is a group that supposedly existed for nearly 100 years. If we work out the dates, they, they existed, they continued a long time. So how were they able to keep a calendar like that for 100 years without, without having to adjust it? So the question is, did they actually keep that calendar or not? So that, that is a question. I'm guessing it would eventually be impossible. Right. The only thing I can think of is if they were keeping the calendar and they saw that it was kind of going off, then they said, oh, someone made a mistake and we have to adjust it. And this is now the right calendar. You know, just saying, oh, someone must have messed up like 10 years ago. And this is really the right one. And and adjust it that way. That's the way they could have kept it for that amount of time is if they actually did adjust it by kind of retroactively saying, oh, somehow someone got it wrong. But it's a question. It's it's a question. There's there's really no way to know what they what they actually kept at what point or or the calendar came into act like they actually started keeping calendar later in the history of the group. But anyway, so there's this idea of these descendants of the Watchers that can influence to sin. There's the idea of, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's Blial, is a major kind of source of sin. And Blial is depicted in two different ways. In the community rule, people are actually kind of born into the lot of Blial. In other words, we're the lot of God. 
And those people are the lot of Blial. The outsiders are the lot of Blial. They actually belong to Blial. So they're really evil. We're literally demonizing everyone who doesn't belong to the group, right? In the Damascus document, which is also a central rule text of the community, but it contradicts. So they're not sure in terms of the community rule in the Damascus document, there's a question of were they kept at different times, different periods in the history of the group, or kept by different groups within the larger community? It isn't clear. We don't know. There are even different opinions in terms of what came first. Like the the people who say, well, it's historically different, right? You have the Damascus document community rule. They were kept at different periods. There's an argument about which came first, right? Which So which was the earlier one and which was the later one? But in the Damascus document, what we see is that as opposed to in the community rule where you can be born into a lot of Blial and Blial is a way of saying, look at those people. They're evil. They belong to a lot of Blial. In the Damascus document, there's kind of an attempt to explain, again, why would someone not accept if we're the community and we're keeping what God wants and we know we're right, how can other people not understand this? And it seems to make so much sense. And they, in the Damascus document, we actually have an explanation saying, look, it's so obvious that you can only have one wife because Adam and Eve were created one man, one wife. And Noah went two by two, right? So obviously you can only have one wife. That's actually an argument that they make. So in the Damascus document, it seems to be that they think that the Blial, Blial causes the incorrect interpretation of scripture, actually, the incorrect interpretation of the Bible itself to get the correct law. And that's a way for them to understand why people who seem otherwise reasonable are not accepting the laws of the sect. And they do say that the leaders, they do seem to say that the leaders are like belong to Blial, the evil leaders, the leaders of the, of the outsiders, those leaders who are misleading everyone, those kind of belong to Blial. Well, how did the people born into the lot of Blial see themselves? Did they consider oh, well, the, you themselves? Have to, you, well, no, obviously not. I mean, you have to realize this is all from the point of view of the community. And this is always the danger, right? When we read what's left from the Second Temple period, in other words, we, we read what has survived. We give... A, an inappropriate amount of weight to what the Dead Sea community says and wrote. Because they were a small little group that happened to live and happened to keep their documents in the desert so that that stuff was preserved. And we don't have things from other groups. Now, this Dead Sea community they saw, or Qumran community, or whatever you want to call it, I avoid calling them the Essenes because they don't seem to be exactly the Essenes. But this community saw themselves as the only people who are really keeping God's law. They want to keep us like no one else does. Now, anyone outside the community who doesn't belong to the community is going to see themselves as perfectly fine because they don't believe in what the community does, right? And on the contrary, they're going to say the community is wrong and they're heretics. And in fact, we know from the community's kind of commentary on Habakkuk, Pesha Habakkuk, they talk about the wicked priest, quote unquote, who comes down and tries to make them eat on Yom Kippur. That's what they imply. And so what they think that is, is that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, came on what the community was keeping as Yom Kippur, which was not the Yom Kippur that everyone else was keeping in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple. And he said, guys, no way, you can't keep a different Yom Kippur. Now, what amazes me is that anyone would even care. Like, okay, it is relatively close to Jerusalem. It's really not far from Jerusalem. So to have a community that's doing a different law, I mean, it's not that surprising that he would know about it, but that he would care enough to go down there and say, you can't keep this as your Yom Kippur. That's pretty wild. That's That really is an attempt at maintaining an orthodoxy that I would not have expected for this period. And of course, this is what they're saying. They're saying this happened. Okay, so exactly what happened, it's very hard to know. But they're saying that 
someone came, that this priest came over and wanted to make them eat on Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur clearly being their Yom Kippur, right? Right, which would be a different date from the general, from the Yom Kippur that, the Yom Kippur that was being kept in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple. So this is a group, they have very specific beliefs. Anyone outside of the group who doesn't believe, if anyone outside of the group who believes in what the group says is going to join the group, because that's the only way to do the right thing, right? But regular people, let's talk about two types of people during the Second Temple period. There's one type of person who's just going about his business. He's not thinking too much about theological issues. He believes he believes in God. He believes in a God that is not physical, not seen. He keeps Shabbat, right? He keeps Brit Milah, right? He has circumcised. He keeps some form of kashrut, some form of keeping kosher. You know, he doesn't, there are things that he doesn't eat. And this is, this is your basic Jew during the second temple period, right? And he goes, he'll go to, if he's outside of Israel, he'll certainly could probably go to some kind of synagogue once on Shabbat to either learn or pray, right? And if he's in the land of Israel, he'll probably go to the temple every now and then, at least on one of the holidays, he'll go. You know, ideally three, but who knows, right? But they, they're, and that's what he does. And he doesn't have to worry about it too much. He's, he, he knows what he believes and he knows what he keeps. And then there are the people who are kind of the thinkers, right? And the writers and the readers. And they're saying, what do I need to do to be pure enough to come to the, to the Beit HaMikdash, to the temple? What do I need to do to really keep the will of God? These are the people who are reading and writing. And they may be reading out these, they may be like, reading what's written to an audience of people who are less, who are not so much readers. But of these thinkers, right, these thinkers, readers, writers, there are almost certainly numerous groups and they're all kind of joining. We have the Chavirim, you know, that the rabbinic texts talk about these groups of Jews who are keeping themselves pure in terms of what they're eating and what they're drinking, what they're touching. There are different groups that are trying to be more in line with what God wants they're thinking more theologically. They might have charismatic leaders and they're around. We know they're around not only, obviously, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know they're around from the Gospels. We have John the Baptist, who's a Jewish guy who's leading a Jewish group of people. This is before any of this kind of goes out to the wider world. There's Jesus, right, who his initial group is all the Jews. And they're, they're in the Galilee. In the Galilee, you can get away with a lot more, by the way, than you can get away with in Judah, as Jesus finds out. Because... People don't realize this. The Galilee is under a different authority than Judea is. Judea is a Roman protectorate. The Romans are more directly involved. And so the Romans are more threatened by anyone kind of coming by some small Jewish group where where they're saying, this guy's the Messiah. Messiah meaning, what does Messiah mean? The son of God. No, Messiah, Messiah means anointed one. That's what Messiah right. means. Messiah means anointed one. There are two people who get anointed. Who gets anointed? The high priest and the king. Right. So for a small group of Jews to be going around in a Roman protectorate saying this guy is the Messiah or the king of the Jews. Right. That is a an absolute threat to authority in a way that in the Galilee, which has a Jewish ruler and there are lots of groups like that. No one's taking them too seriously. You come into Judea and you start saying that and start interfering and with the temple, the Romans kind of start paying attention, right? It's a different situation. So here we're talking that the C-sect is actually in Judea. No one is saying 
that they have the king, right? No one is saying that they have the king or the Messiah or even the person who should be high priest, even though they are saying that the high priest should be a descendant of Tzedok, which at this point he is not. But moving back to a summary of the podcast, so we were saying that Blial, right, is the main is a main bad guy for the Dead Sea community because Blial shows up as a bad guy also in the very beginning of Jubilees. And the question is, was that added later? I personally don't think Jubilees was written within Qumran. I think it comes from outside Qumran. I think it very clearly comes from outside Qumran. I'm not going to get into arguments about that now. There is now a train of thought that says, oh yeah, the Qumran community wrote um, Jubilees and it's, and frankly, it's ridiculous. It's, it's completely not true. There's no reason to say that, in my opinion, despite the fact that Blial shows up in the first chapter. He does. He shows up in the first chapter and then he disappears. But for the community, Blial is the commander of the outsiders. The outsiders, obviously, in their lives, don't consider themselves outsiders at all. They consider themselves Jews who are doing the best they can. And they don't particularly believe in what the community believes in, which is why they need Blial. And this is a, this is a theme that has been continuing through our podcast, which is that people have beliefs that answer questions. And the questions they answer, whatever problem that answer creates is less of a problem than their initial question. In other words, you might say, how can you say that anyone who's outside the community is actually in the lot of a demon? For them, at the stage that they're reading the community rule and writing community rule, that's not as big a problem as why are we so persecuted? Realize that they're answering different, that the Damascus document and the community rule are answering different questions. The community rule is answering the question, why are we so persecuted? Why is it so hard to be us? Right. And so, well, there's this lot of Blial. All these people who are opposing us are in this lot of Blial. They're demonic. And God, in his mystery, you know, his mysterious wisdom, has decided that this time period is going to be given over to Blial, that Blial will be able to rule in this time period. But that will end with the end time. And that explains why the community is persecuted and why this can happen if the community is actually doing what God wants. Now, in the Damascus document, it's a different problem that they have. Their problem is. These people who are outside, and it's a much nicer way of looking at outsiders, why don't they just understand that we're doing the right thing? Why don't they join us? The answer is, well, they're misled by Blial. One way of being free of being misled by Blial is if you join the community. Then you're not misled. And then you have Blial in the War Scroll. And in the War Scroll, it's Blial is actually the head of not just Jews, but also non-Jews, and maybe even principally non-Jews. And now they're just taking all the traditional non-Jewish nations who have been enemies of the Israelites, right? And they're kind of putting them together and pretty much adding the Romans. And they're all on the on the opposite side under Blial. They're not necessarily thinking in terms of, oh, every single non-Jew. They're kind of using paradigmatic nations that were traditionally opposing the Israelites or the Jewish people. And with that, we kind of concluded what we were talking about about demonic spirits. In other words, let's look at what they attributed to demonic spirits. They have the watchers that they tend to more attribute the Dead Sea community, the Qumran community, is more likely to use them to explain kind of their struggle, right, to not sin. In First Enoch and Jubilees, they're just the sentence of the watchers are what cause all sorts of evil and sin in general. And then we moved on to the evil inclination. And the evil inclination, I use a very wide interpretation. I don't just look at places where it says, Yetzirah, the evil inclination, or Yetzirah, evil inclination. I look at wherever it's talking about an internal inclination to sin. And what we saw was that biblically, we can trace the idea of an evil inclination to the verses surrounding the flood. And then we looked and saw how this plays out in uh, Ben Sira, where Ben Sira uses the evil inclination actually to emphasize free will. And Philo, where 
on the one hand, he believes in free will. On the other hand, the evil inclination means that one will inevitably sin. There's no way you can always withstand. It's a very pessimistic view. And then we looked once again at fourth Ezra and how the for him, the evil inclination ties into this idea of sin from Adam. And finally, we looked at the evil inclination in Second Temple Prayer and how in Second Temple Prayer, there's an idea that the evil inclination is tied... It, in regular, in general Second Temple prayer, there's kind of this expression of an evil inclination, you know, of a, a tendency to sin that's tied to the person. And that what that becomes in that Sea Scrolls is actually a state of sin, where this is the first time we really see the idea of a state of sin. We see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls when they're describing kind of an evil inclination in prayer. And it's bound to the physical right? I am a creature of clay. I am, you know, disgusting, maggoty, like I'm really, really using harsh, harsh phrases. And God has raised me out of it. And there we really see the idea of sin as a state. Now, it's interesting that this is the first place where we really see, and we've talked about this idea also, the idea of sin as action against the will of God, and the idea of sin as a state that a human being is in. And where we really see it is not wherever we have an evil inclination. We really see it in these prayers in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they're describing a kind of a physical state of people that requires lifting out by God. And one of the things I've been emphasizing again and again is that in prayer, there's more of a likelihood that one's going to express a dependence on God to get you out of it. Whereas in stories, there's more of a personal responsibility. Like in, in Jubilees, you, you still have a responsibility. In the introduction to the legal text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's actually an emphasis on responsibility while still talking about evil inclination. That you have to, because you know that you have an evil inclination, you have to choose God's commandments instead. You know you have an evil inclination, so that gives you absolutely no excuse. You have to choose. But in prayer, there's a constant cry, God, help me, God, help me. I can't do it without your help. But by choosing to pray, you're making the choice to try not to sin, if that makes sense. It does, and it is part of not only the view of Qumran sectarians, but also the view of Second Temple Jews in general, that um, I am one of the righteous. I am praying, I am one of the righteous, even though I sinned yesterday, right? I want and, to even though I'll, yeah, I want, and even though I'll sin tomorrow, I am one of the righteous, God help me. Okay, but they don't talk about it in terms of choice. They don't talk about it and say, oh, I chose to pray. They say, God, please help me. They talk about it in terms of choice. At least, you know, again, we have to rely overly on the Dead Sea Scrolls because that's what we have. In the introduction to these legal texts in the Damascus document, the community rule, in the Damascus document in particular, it actually talks about choice, choosing. You have to choose God's commandments and not your own will. And then in the episode that you missed, last episode, I talked about the Treatise of the Two Spirits and how the Treatise of the Two Spirits, which was long considered and sometimes still considered by people to simply be an expression of the theology of the Qumran community. And I think we, it's, we've shown enough here that there isn't one single approach in the Qumran community. It actually uses different terminology and different ideas than anywhere else in the scrolls, pretty much. And I think it was adopted and put into the community rule because even though it uses different terminology and different ideas, it actually manages to combine a lot of these different ideas. The idea of a dualism of in the treatise of the two spirits, there are two spirits, right? Essentially good and bad, light and dark. And for anyone who, let's say, believes in Belial, so they'll say, oh yeah, the dark spirit, that's Belial, right? It talks about the spirit of darkness itself commands 
evil spirits that cause righteous people to sin. That's something that would be familiar to anyone who believes in the Watchers. Then it has this idea that these are actually qualities in a person. There are evil qualities the person can have. And that connects more to the idea of there being an evil inclination. It says in the end time, there are two different ideas in the treatise of Jesus One is that in the end time, wicked people will be destroyed. Another one is that wickedness itself will be destroyed and the righteous will no longer have a desire to sin. Again, this is the idea that even the righteous have this evil inclination and might sin. So the trees of the two spirits, even though it uses different terminology and different ideas, seems to be affected by Persian thought. It still manages to wrap, to bring together all sorts of different ideas that are we find throughout the scrolls and throughout Second Temple literature in one text. So I think that it was brought into the community rule because it it can be seen, depending on what you believe, it can be seen as reflecting that belief in terms of where sin comes from. So finally, so what have we seen? What have we seen so far? What we've seen so far is that there's been numerous types of attributions of sin, drawing from, frequently drawing from biblical texts, but not always, and that these explanations of sin are meant to explain that not just sin itself, but they're meant to be used in certain situations. I talked about contextual explanations. That, for example, Ben Sira will have one explanation of sin in one place, another in another place, because he's addressing different problems. And I think that people in the Second Temple period, frankly, again, like people today, use different explanations in different situations. So that if I am praying and I feel like there's this struggle, and I'm like, this can't be me, this struggle to sin, then I'll maybe attribute it to the watcher spirits. If I'm, I'm talking with other community members and we're saying, why do those people not understand the law? I, those people are nice, and yet they're not, let's, let's say, I, they don't usually say those people are nice, but let's say, they say, those people, you know, I know them, but they don't accept the law that we know is correct. They must be misled by Blia. And they're different, or someone will say, no, it's your choice. You have an evil inclination. There's nothing to do with the spirit. You've got to choose now. Are you going to accept the law or not accept the law, right? And in different situations, you'll have different things that are that are stressed. And also, different things that are stressed in terms of determinism versus free will, even for the Qumran community that generally is deterministic. But with all the differences in the explanations of sin, are there any universal views on sin or are they all really just different? That's a great question. I think that the universals on sin are, one, the person who is speaking considers themselves righteous, whether or not they sin. They are righteous. That's true. I didn't yeah, think yeah, of that, yeah. but wow. Um, and ideally, their audience also is righteous, and they have ways of not sinning. In other words, except for maybe Philo, who, who was very pessimistic, there are things they can do. They can pray to God. They can choose correctly. They're, they're different. They can either pray to God for help. They can rely on the fact that they were destined to be good, or they can choose. They can say, I have a choice. I always have a choice, and I can choose the right way. So they have defenses against sin. They themselves are, should be, are basically righteous, and God is on their side in this battle. God does not want them to sin. God is on their side. And that's why one can pray to God, stop me from sinning. Because you know that God doesn't want doesn't want you to sin. And God, God is on your side. Maybe with the exception of 4th Ezra. But 4th Ezra at the end says, yes, God is on your side. But you can always find exceptions for things. But I think those that's the basic. That's, that's a great question. So I think those are the universals. And what we've seen is that even the idea of what is sin, is sin an action or a state, it's still generally considered an action. We still have those prayers, those Dead Sea Scroll prayers, where are, which are looking at, at it more as a state that you're lifted out of. So that's been the podcast so far. And in the next 
episodes what I'm going to be talking about. And again, we're going to go back to looking at the biblical text and saying, what are the consequences of sin? What is the idea of the consequences of sin? How does that change? And what does that become even? And, and we are going to address a little bit about what it becomes in the Second Temple period and in rabbinic literature. And then we're going to move on to ideas of collective punishment and intergenerational punishment and how attitudes to that change in the Bible itself, in the Hebrew Bible. So thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with me so far. If you are new to the podcast, now you kind of know what you're interested in and you'd like to listen to more. And looking forward to speaking to you again. I'm also looking forward to your comments. Please keep your comments and questions coming. Speak to you next time. And thank you, Melissa. Oh, thank you. Take care. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.